Jesus. So would you hear the word of the Lord with me this morning? And Jesus said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and were cast into the sea, than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord God, I pray that you would take these words this morning and enable us to serve you, to seek you, to love you in the midst of them. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, like I said, over the last six days, I've been to two weddings, which is uh, above average for me, I'll say. Um, and uh, so it was, it was a gift uh, to be at, at both of them. And, and it got me thinking, as weddings tend to do, uh, about marriage. Uh, it's kind of interesting, right? I, I rem- was remembering back, Indra and I dated, we were pretty much long distance when we were dating. So I was living up in Lone Pine, uh, which is out, if you go to nowhere, it's right in the middle. And, um, and she was living down in L.A. And so um, when she was close, she was living in L.A. And so we didn't have a lot of time kind of together. And, and so as we're going through marriage counseling and stuff, getting ready, we went to two different counselors because we figured we probably needed uh, that. And uh, they would ask us how we fought, right? What's it like when you guys fight? And we were like, well, we don't fight. Um, which, yeah, exactly. Not yet, right? That's... <laughs> That's, that's a wonderful thing to think for the first couple months before you get married. <laughs> um, and, and we have since discovered in the last 10 years how we fight. And so that's been a, that's been a good growing process. Uh, but it's easy to think that, of course, that your marriage is going to be different, right? That you're not going to fall into the same traps that your parents fell into. You're not going to fall into the same traps that everybody else fell into, that your stupid friends fall into, right? But your marriage is going to be different, especially when you're standing up there at the altar and everything seems so perfect and she's so beautiful and he's whatever. Um, but, but it's like we don't expect that we're going to be like everybody else. <laughs> and yet, all marriages go down these roads. Because along the way, something called life happens. Right? It's the same with kids. It's the same with work. It's the same with everything that we engage, and we all have a tendency to think that we're just a little bit different, a little bit special, (laughs) and we're not going to have to get in the dirt and into the muck like everybody else does. Well, today, as we're kind of talking about discipleship, and we've covered sort of the goal and the vision, we've talked about the virtues, right, Um, uh, courage, wisdom, patience, and justice ways that we interact well with other people, faith, hope, and love, these virtues that are kind of God-directed, and yet they all seven of those virtues work together. And as we grow in those virtues, we really grow in Christ-likeness. It's Christ who was perfectly each one of those things. We've also talked last week about these habits, these kind of five pictures of, of how it is that we are to live, things that every, I would say, every Christian life in some way engages in. Right? Worship, 
right? Every Christian, I'm sorry, I know there's football on uh, this time of year, but every Christian is called to worship. And um, prayer, you know, a lot of us don't like to slow down, and yet we are called to prayer. Uh, a community, right? A lot of us are loners, and it'd be great if we could kind of slip into worship and slip out to prayer and then just live our lives, but God has called us into deep kind of relationship with one another. Uh, study, you may, like, you may not like it, but God has called us to transform not only our, our um, sort of spirits, but our minds as well, right? And then what's the last one? I don't know, service or something like that. It's really important. Um, God has called us in, let's see, worship, prayer, it's probably back here. I'm going to find it. I don't want to mess that up. Worship, study, witness, prayer. Oh, witness, there we go. It's what Kathy was talking about, right? That in some way, we're going to be called over the course of our Christian life uh, either to live out this life of faith or we're going to be called to speak out this life of faith. And a lot of us would love it if we didn't ever have actually have to speak it, right? If I was just such a shining example of God's kingdom that I never had to open my mouth. Well, the truth is, <laughs> is that we're called to open our mouths, Right? Um, some of us would love it if all we had to do was speak and never have to actually change the way we live. But God has called us into both kinds of witness, and really they're one. And so it's critical that we kind of live those habits. Well, today we're going to talk about, well, we're not going to talk about all 21, because 21 is a lot. But we have in this form of discipleship kind of these 21 specific ways for us to engage in this life, these practices, right? Because it's, it's easy for us sometimes in the faith to think like, okay, I'm just going to kind of slip into the stuff that's natural to me, right? I like to sing and play music, so I'm going to be a part of the worship team, or I like to kind of be behind the scenes, so I'm going to come help throughout the week, but not, never actually get out in front of people, or I'm, you know, I, I like to witness in, I don't know, uh, being creative, and so I'm going to go do that, but I'm never actually going to speak the truth. Right? And so what we have in both Scripture and in the Christian tradition are what we call works of mercy. These come largely um, from John Wesley, although he didn't invent most of them. But it's things like prayer. Right? It's things like solitude, being willing to actually be by yourself. It's things like Sabbath. Um, I love that first song we sang, Waymaker. Uh, but sometimes, if you're a workaholic, that bridge <laughs> can be kind of a problem for us, right? Why? Because it says, you never stop, you never stop working, right? That's not what we're supposed to do. That's for God. <laughs> God can do the never stop working thing. We're actually called to rest. So it's those kinds of, we would call them devotional work, works of devotion, uh, devotional works of mercy. Um, I once called them works of piety, and I was scolded, and so we, <laughs> so we sort of, because, you know, the language of piety is just so pious. And so we say devotion instead. Um, but uh, we have kind of those internal works, right? And then we sort of switch over and we have these external works. And so we call them bodily works of mercy, works that actually engage with someone's body, feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, clothing the naked, uh, giving shelter to the homeless, right? These are all kinds of works of mercy that are incredibly important that we're called to visiting the imprisoned, right? There's one in the scriptures even burying the dead, right? That Christians and believers in God would be willing to go to those places where, where people are just exposed in their kind of vulnerability and their weakness 
and be willing to say, look, I'm going to be here. I mean, you think of the, the good Samaritan, right, as he meets this broken man on the side of the road and what he does. That he actually, in the midst of his danger, pauses and takes on this man's weakness for himself. That he heals him. That he gives of his own resources to provide for him. Right? This is incredibly significant. It's the life that we're called to. The third category, so you kind of have devotional works of mercy, bodily works of mercy, and then there's this category of spiritual works of mercy. This is stuff like counseling uh, the ignorant or counseling the doubtful, teaching the ignorant, right? Where I'm going to sit with somebody else. So the difference is devotional is kind of me with God for the most part. Uh, bodily is I'm dealing, I'm helping somebody's bodily need. Right? And then the spiritual works of mercy, I'm meeting somebody in their weakness, but it might not be a bodily need. right? So it might be education, or counsel, or comfort, right? that kind of thing. And so we look at all of this, and we kind of have listed out 21 specific things, but the question that comes up for a lot of us is, in our world, is like, aren't we saved by grace and not by works? Right? This is the thing that we wrestle with, and we say this, all the time, right? We're saved by faith. All of this comes out of the Reformation and Martin Luther about 500 years ago. Um, believers really started questioning this idea of how important are our good works, so to speak, uh, to our salvation. Because people had kind of gotten it backwards, and we always have a, we have a tendency to do this, right? We have a tendency to think that because I do good things, then God is going to save me. Right? That somehow I can, I can look at the scale, and if I pile more good things on the good side of the scale, then God's going to have to let me into heaven, maybe begrudgingly. Right? <laughs> but if I pile a bunch of bad things on the scale, all the times I, I you know, had something mean to say on the road, or I didn't pick up the phone call I was supposed to pick up, or I avoided my duty, or I didn't give to the person I should have given. I mean, all those kind of little and big bad things that we do, and we're all just living our lives kind of, how do we make sure this scale tips at least a little bit toward the good? And we know that this is a pretty bankrupt way of living. None of us on our own effort can do enough good to be saved. It's simply not possible. That's, and the reason it's not possible is because that's not how God ever saw it. God never set up a system in which it was about doing enough good things. He didn't. For God, it's always been about, I'm going to pour out all my good, and what I'm looking for is a response of gratitude. Right? And so there are a couple times where the New Testament talks about faith by works. Right? One is in Ephesians 2, where he says, we are, not, we are saved by faith alone. But there's a second half to that sentence. We are saved by faith in Christ alone, in order that we may do all those good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Right? So you can say faith alone, and, and sometimes people get real intense about that. Well, I'm saved by faith, and so I don't have to do anything. I believed in Jesus, and that's enough. Well, it's like you stopped reading in the middle of the sentence. Not even, not even a paragraph break or anything, or a, a new verse. It's the same verse. <laughs> so that we can perform those good works. James talks about it, but he actually says it kind of the other way around. He says, 
You think you're saved by faith alone? You show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. The point is, what's the source, right? The source of our salvation is not and cannot be our effort, right? We, there's no way for us to work hard enough and pile up enough good stuff on that good side of the scale. We're saved simply because God loves us, period, full stop. And nothing we do has anything to say about that. It's just God's salvation poured out. The most we can do is kind of open our eyes and receive it. But <laughs> then, if we're really going to receive that salvation, we have got to respond to it. You can't tell me that you've received the grace of God and that it hasn't changed you in any way. I'll say with James, then you simply haven't received it. When we receive God's grace, it changes who we are. And there's a reason for this. Um, I know one of the, the Sunday schools has been going through 1 John, and uh, part of that conversation has been a conversation about the Gnostics, right? Kind of this, this group of people who are around in the first and second century, and they're still around. Um, <laughs> and it's kind of this, this subtle sort of twisting of the good news of Jesus, right, that takes faith and works and separates them out. Well, there were two groups, especially in the early church, kind of the Gnostic group and another group called the Ebionite group. You don't need to know that name. But here's how it breaks down. We, what do we confess about Jesus Christ? That he is fully, anybody? Fully God and? And fully? And fully human, right? Yeah, fully God and fully man. That he is in every way divine, in every way that is necessary to his divinity. He is divine. He's, there's no way that you could look at him and be like, ah, he's kind of God. He's like 78% God. Uh, the other 22% is a little debatable. No, like he is fully God. He is the Son of God. He's one of the persons of the Trinity. And that person of the Trinity fully and completely took up residence, put on human flesh, elevated human nature so that he could become one with it. And yet there's nothing about humanity that Jesus has not taken on. Right? There's nothing about being human that Jesus doesn't hold in himself. So everything necessary to being a person, uh, to being a human, um, is present in Jesus Christ. We always make sure we distinguish they're not sin, right? Well, guess what? Sin is not necessary to being human. We weren't created with sin. Sin is an add-on. It's like mold. It's like mildew that shows up after the fact. But it's not what it is to be human. Right? Jesus has everything that it is to be human in himself. So we've got those fully human and fully God. All right? Now here's the thing. The Gnostics and the Ebionites are going to split those apart. All right? So the Ebionites, they're the ones who are going to say Jesus is fully human but because he's fully human, he can't really be fully God. They'll say he's kind of the Jewish Messiah, he's the Hebrew Messiah, and he's the one that Israel was looking for, but that humanity obviously cancels out the fact that he's really divine. So he's a great teacher. He's maybe the greatest moral teacher that the world has ever known. 
He's a wonderful person. He totally, definitely should not have been crucified. Right? And this perspective, this look at Jesus is actually going to change the way that we see the world. If Jesus is strictly human, then what is the church, the body of Christ? Well, the church is just an assembly of like-minded individuals. We're a sociological reality, right? We're a bunch of people who get together because it's nice to get together once a week. It's great to have friends, you know? And so you got to have friends somewhere, so why not have them in church, right? It's, it kind of boils everything that we do here down to just the physical, the explainable. And the social scientists will come in and be able to talk about what's going on. But this is all rooted in really a belief that Jesus is human and not divine. It's like they walk in and they go, don't worry, there's nothing spooky or mystical or sacred or, or holy happening here. This is just what happens when friends get together who all happen to believe in God. And so what do we do? If that's how you see the world, then you just pile up all the good things that you can think of. Right? Do all the good stuff. Feed the poor, uh, shelter the, the homeless. Uh, just be as good a person as you can be. Be a kind person as you drive out. Don't, you know, don't lose your temper. Don't fly off the handle. Be nice to your spouse. Be nice to your kids. Save your money. Be a good citizen. Go to work. All of that. right? But it's rooted in this idea that there's not actually anything sacred or holy or unique or spirit-empowered happening when the church gathers because Jesus himself was just the son of Mary. It's this misunderstanding about Jesus that changes the way we see the church, that changes the way we act and live in the world. It's why it's so important to know who Christ is. On the other hand, there's this kind of Gnostic, or uh, the other word for it is Docetic view of things. That Jesus is divine, but not really human. And a lot of us, believe it or not, a lot of us may have slipped into that at times. Right? Where we go, okay, if Jesus is going to be really God, he couldn't actually be human like me. If Jesus is going to be really the Son of God, he could not have actually been tempted to sin. You just can't imagine a, a, a Christ, a Lord, who is Lord over all creation, who might actually buckle and struggle, and weep. And so some of the Gnostics would say, well, Jesus just seemed to do all of that stuff. But it was like, it's kind of like he was acting. He, he was sort of play acting. He didn't really die. He just sort of closed his eyes for a couple days. Right? And then woke up. He just passed out on the cross. And then all of a sudden woke up in a tomb and said, hey, guys, it's me. <laughs> Please don't bury me alive. And everybody just sort of made up these stories about the resurrection. See, the Gnostics want to tell us that Jesus is just kind of seeming to live this life, but he's not actually in human flesh. He doesn't struggle the way we struggle. He doesn't suffer the way we suffer. Because how could the Son of God lose hope? How could the second person of the Trinity despair? How could one who can raise the dead be afraid of dying? They're legitimate questions. And they're not easy questions to answer. 
And yet our Christian conviction is that that is the case. If you are a Gnostic, welcome. Uh, we're glad you're here. Uh, but if you're a Gnostic, these, this might be kind of how it works out, is that ultimately the church only seems human. But we want the church to be bigger than our humanity. Here's the thing about Gnostics. They really don't like icky body stuff. <laughs> right? So when you come to church and there's too many people in the building, big problem for us, something we struggle with every week, but we're working on it. Um, when there's too many people in the building, you have to sit next to somebody you don't like. Or you have to sit next to somebody who didn't wear the right perfume. Right? Or, or, or all of a sudden, they're taking up too much space. It's like everybody on an airplane is a Gnostic, right? <laughs> because that person's a little too on the armrest, and the other person, I'm not sure what's going on over there, but there's not enough air in this place, and everybody's feeling stuffy and ready to get out, right? There's too many bodies in too small of a space on airplanes, and this is how Gnostics kind of feel about the whole world. They're always trying to transcend or go beyond their bodies. Gnostic, the word, means knowledge. And so what they're saying is, we are not saved with our bodies. We are saved by our knowledge. We're saved by knowing. And this is why I say the temptation is for us, when we want to say, I'm saved by faith alone and not by works, the temptation is to slip into Gnosticism, where I say, I don't need that body stuff to be saved. I don't have to actually show up and pray for God to transform me. I don't actually need to feed the poor. I don't actually need to be with people I struggle with. I don't actually need to learn patience in my body. I'm just going to let God sort of save my mind and lift up my spirit. The original Gnostics from the first and second century would talk about a ladder. It's kind of like you're at this level and then slowly over time, maybe if you pay enough money, you get up to the next level, right? And then you get invited to the seminar next weekend, and then you can kind of go up to the next level, right? I mean, it was sort of this big pyramid scheme, and oftentimes there was somebody at the top just sort of raking in the dough. But the spiritual vision was this idea of sort of climbing the ladder to God. And you slowly but surely sort of get a little more enlightened than all those normies down there who have to do physical kinds of things. They'd move up in levels and achievements and even kind of have private rituals that would involve their sort of in and their outness. And there were two kind of ways that these Gnostic groups would go. Some of them because, again, remember, the body is bad. The body is not good. You don't take the body into eternity with you. So you want to get rid of the body as much as you can. And so they would do things like extreme fasting or extreme uh, bodily denial, staying up, never sleeping for weeks and weeks, right? Or staying away from water as well as food. I mean, you just kind of, these really extreme kind of things. Really, their vision and their mission was to destroy their body in order to free their mind where the knowledge lived. Other Gnostics 
kind of said, hey, the body doesn't matter, so I can do whatever I want with the body. And it sounds weird, but they would just say, follow whatever appetite you have. Eat, with what, eat whatever you want to eat. Sleep with whoever you want to sleep with. Uh, be wherever you want to be. Just enjoy it because it doesn't matter. It's going to get destroyed. As long as your knowledge is in the right place, you can do whatever you want with your body. And the Christians came along and they said, wait, 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 wait. You don't need to destroy your body. It's a good gift of God. And also, please, don't just indulge your body, 1 Corinthians 6. Do I go and join my body to members of a prostitute? And that doesn't just mean sexual desire. He's talking about idolatry, a temple prostitute. Do I just go and do that? Never, Paul says. So what is the Christian approach? The Christian approach is not to destroy or indulge, but to discipline. To say, I know that I have these impulses that are not holy, and so I want to rein those in, but I also know that my body is not a wicked or evil thing. And so I want to discipline it to do what it is meant to do, to worship, to pray, to love, to serve this world, which, yes, it's kind of gone off the rails, but we're not here to just wreck the whole thing. Christ, who is fully human and fully God, gives us a new vision. That the church is, yes, sociological and human. It's an institution. It's fleshy. And it's also divine and mystical and sacred and spiritual. And we hold those two things together. And sometimes they feel like they're at conflict, but it's not because Christ is wrong. It's because we're still being redeemed. Right? The image in the scriptures for this is the burning bush, which is just a regular old bush on the side of a mountain. It's just a botanical reality growing there, right? It came from a seed. It was planted in the dirt. It grew up because it rained. And then what happened? The Lord of the universe, the Lord, the creator of all, it says, is in that shrub. And yet, it did not burn up. It burned, but was not consumed. And Moses turned aside, and God revealed himself out of that thing of sticks and leaves. This is us. Jesus Christ takes up a body in the womb of Mary and fills it, but does not burn it up. You would think that when Divine meets human, you just get smoked. But instead, we get divine reality and human reality, and they're pulled together, and they don't destroy one another. That's how God always meant it to be. It was our sin and our rebellion that made it any different. The other image that I love is of going to a blacksmith shop. Some of the early fathers talked about this. They'd go to a blacksmith shop, and they see a guy take a piece of iron and he puts it in the fire. And it has the same shape, but it gets full of heat. Right? So that you have this big piece of iron that, yeah, it can be molded and shaped and all of that, but the point is, is that it's still iron. The chemical makeup of that thing is exactly the same. And yet it's full of the heat. It's full of the light. It's full of this sort of, this black piece of iron is now full of light and heat. The same thing, but it's filled with the person and presence of God. The other way of saying this is that grace 
divinity and nature, physicality, come together in one. And in that grace and nature, you don't have them canceling each other out, but rather grace perfects nature. And so this is what it is to be, this was very much what it is to be Jesus, right? Nature perfected by grace. And this is the vision of the church that we get in the New Testament. That God is taking us, sort of normal, everyday, shrubby people, and he's building us into a people who are filled and enlivened and set on fire, but not consumed. We're still ourselves, but even more so because now the Father and the Spirit have taken up residence in us. I should say, the Spirit has taken up residence in us. So, what is this uh, for us as we walk forward, right? We have to bring our effort and our struggle into this journey with Christ. You might say we bring our works into our journey with Christ as a response to God's grace. That means these bodily works of mercy, like we've said, feeding the hungry, sheltering the homeless, canceling debts, visiting the imprisoned and the sick. Gnostics hated this kind of stuff, right? Why save the body when it's the soul that really matters? And yet the New Testament gives us these explicit instructions. Look at Matthew 25. Jesus says, you thought you were feeding just some guy on the side of the road. You thought you were visiting some stranger. No, it wasn't a stranger. It was me. When you encountered somebody in need, when you met that need, you met me. And then we have the spiritual works of mercy, counseling the doubtful, leading people to faith, praying for people, being a spiritual father or mother to people, teaching the ignorant. And the Ebionites, the people who were Jesus is just flesh, they hated this stuff, right? In our day, it's people who mock the idea of thoughts and prayers, right? Anytime something bad happens and someone says thoughts and prayers, everybody jumps on them. Why don't you do something real, right? Don't just think about them. Don't just pray for them. Do something. I can't think of anything more real than prayer. Not that we stop there, but I think we ought to start and end with prayer. And that real prayer leads us into physical action. The spiritual world is at least as real as the physical world. And finally, I'd say we come to the devotional works of mercy where we seek to simply stand in the light of God's grace. Prayer, reading the scriptures, Sabbath and rest. The image for me of this is a flower or a plant just standing in the sunshine. Why do they do that? I don't know. How does it work? I mean, I know the name photosynthesis. I learned it in fourth grade or whatever. But really, like, it's literally just a plant just being present. <laughs> and so often in our prayer, we're like, man, what is this actually doing? We're standing in the sunshine. We may not be hearing the voice of God, but we're called into his presence. As we rest and, and study and learn the scriptures, we're standing in the light saying, Lord, in some way I am made for this. I'm made to be present with you. And our challenge to the world here 
is a fully integrated faith that's both spiritual and physical. You know, I, I don't know how you think about all this, but I just want to let you know that everybody here today has a body, right? <laughs> In case you were wondering, you have a body, uh, <laughs> but you also have a soul. You're not just a collection of cells and neurons and, and kind of a random application of, of chemical reactions that have brought you to this place. There's something eternal in you, to you. And it's critical, as much as we go to the doctor to hear, you know, how our heart's doing and whether our lung is still doing that thing and does our knee still kind of randomly give out on us as we're walking down the street or whatever it is, it's critical that we have a healthy soul as well. We've got to care for the body, but God has also called us to care for the soul. God cares how you eat, how you exercise. God also cares how you pray, how your soul is growing or not growing. And just as the body can become unhealthy and unfit, where the systems of our body don't work well together, so our soul can get sick. And it's not just about, you know, I did bad things. I sinned. It's also about I actually need to grow in health. Right? Salvation, go back to the beginning here. We're saved in Christ, not merely at a wedding. Right? It's not just a moment. You don't just stand up there and say, Jesus, I'm ready to be a part of you and your family, and then you sign the marriage certificate and put that in the folder and send it off to the county, and it's registered and it's done, you're saved. No, salvation is not just a wedding. Salvation is a marriage. It's something you grow in. It's something where you learn all of a sudden how you fight. <laughs> it's something where you learn how to be perfected. It's, it's both a struggle and a joy. Salvation, this marriage we have with Christ and His church is how we are purified. And it happens at the high points when it's exciting and, and wonderful, and it happens at the low points when it's mundane and confusing. Why isn't God talking to me? Why am I not getting the answer I want or need? And so these 21 practices that we talk about, these spiritual works of mercy and bodily works of mercy and devotional works of mercy, you know, some of them are obvious and for everyone. Prayer, Scripture, Sabbath. And others like freeing the captive or raising the dead. <laughs> Maybe not for everyone every day of the week. They might have to be interpreted by wise people. But let us make no mistake that God is calling us to the health of both our body and our soul so that you can love God and love your neighbor with all that you are and all that you have. And that's the vision here, is that we would become fully healthy, not just so we can get our clean bill of health and have, you know, some things stamped and feel good about ourselves, that we're a big, healthy person. No, we become healthy and we grow in those ways so that we can love more deeply and care for God's world more fully. So the invitation to the table today is to say, and 
you know, we don't talk about this stuff all the time, but the reason it's green right now is we're in this period of the church where we focus on growth, where we just say this is what it is to live in Christ. Like an everyday tree, just standing out in the sunlight, figuring out how to grow. And maybe there's a part of your life that isn't green. Maybe there's a part of your mind or your soul or even your body that's not healthy. And it might be something to ask the Lord, how would you have me to respond to this? Is it that anger that keeps coming back? Is, is it a health problem that comes from bad habits? Is it something mentally that is just not quite straight? It's just not quite where it ought to be. We've got to ask that question, Lord, how would you have me come into full health, not so that I can just feel good about myself and my doctor can pat me on the back. How would you have me come into full health so that I can love the world fully and completely as you have made me to love the world, so that I can love you fully and completely as you have made me to love you, just as Christ, who was fully human and fully divine, was able to love with every fiber of his being. There was nothing in Christ that was held back from the love of God. I pray that as we come to this table today, that we would be opening ourselves up to that same kind of love, that same kind of fullness of light and hope. Lord, you've called us together today to worship you. I pray, Father, that as we consider those habits and practices we have in our lives, that you would make clear any of them that have been any of them that have taken us away from you, any of them that have that we've gotten engaged in, Lord, in, in order to avoid something in ourselves. I pray instead, Lord God, that you would help us to see and to engage in these good and healthy life-giving practices that give us the fullness of your mercy, of your hope, and of your life. In them and them alone, Lord God, may we find you because we know, Lord, that you are the one. You are the one who is call us into this fullness of life, and we want to be a people who come after your son Jesus in everything we do. In Jesus' name, amen.